To support our work at the Izzy and Murtada Picture Show and the work of other independent creators like us, sign up to listen to the podcast on Nebula. Nebula is the creator-owned streaming platform that hosts great videos and podcasts like the one you're listening to now. Sign up today at nebula.tv slash picture show and you will get access to this podcast plus other great podcasts and videos. Sign up for Nebula and help support independent media creators. That's nebula.tv slash picture show. Hi, I'm Murtada. And I'm Izzy, and welcome to the Izzy and Murtada Picture Show. Yay! We're coming back to you with another episode. What do we have on the docket this week, Izzy? Well, Murtada, have you heard of a little thing called the Sight and Sound Greatest Films of All Time poll? Yes, I think I have somewhere. Okay, somewhere. yes, you may have heard of a of a little bit of discourse happening throughout the year. Uh, this is a poll that started in 1952. It occurs every 10 years or so. And it's a survey of uh, critics and artists and directors and actors, what they think are the best films of all time. And those are aggregated into the a list of the 100 greatest films. And this year, uh, well, actually in 2022, the film that was voted the best of all time was Jean Dillman, 23, Quai de Commerce, 1080 Bruxelles, which was poorly pronounced by me, but I did try. The only thing I would add to that is I think it's Bruxelles. And I know oh. that only because that's how it's said in Arabic. So, uh, you know, what? I'm going to trust you on that one because I do not <laughs> trust myself at all. <laughs> um <laughs> But this film, I think, caused a tad of discourse because people weren't really expecting it to um, top the list, although it has gradually been climbing up the list for the past couple of polls. And we wanted to talk to somebody who would have a very intimate knowledge of this film and might be able to shed some light on why it's growing in popularity more recently. So we decided to talk to Catherine Fowler, who is a professor of media and film studies at the University of Otago in New Zealand. And she recently wrote a book um, about the film for BFI Film Classics, which essentially details its making, its inspirations, um, and some of the reasons we might consider it a classic, or as she terms it, a contrary classic, which we'll get into. Um, so without further ado... Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. Um, for those of you, for listeners who maybe haven't seen Jean Dillman, can you give us a quick summary of the film and maybe some of its uh, larger themes? Yes. Well, do you realize how ironic that question is? A quick summary of a three-hour, 20-minute film. <laughs> um, but I've been asked that before, so I will do. Um, so, um, Jeanne Dealman is about Jeanne, played by Delphine Seyrig, who is a widow in her late forties, uh, living in Brussels with a son, um, of 16. And the film takes place over five days of her life. So she's a housewife. Therefore, what we see is her daily routine, uh, in wearying detail. It's actually a film that does feel, that does make you tired. Um, in the afternoons, between cooking dinner and serving it to her son, uh, so, sorry, uh, before she serves it to her son, uh, she hosts male visitors who disappear into her bedroom and we see nothing more. Over the course of the three days, we've become accustomed to her routine, so much so that we notice changes in the small repetitions that we've been watching. Um, and these changes order her world until gradually in the last 10 minutes, um, her world unravels completely. Do you want to talk a little bit about the inspiration behind the film and what was the primary reason it was written? Why? What is it trying to say? 
Yes. Well, uh, what is it trying to say? <laughs> there are different versions of that. So there's what the critics think it was trying to say. And then there's what Ackerman thinks it was trying to say. Uh, so it's probably worth telling you a little bit about the how the film was appraised when it was released um, and then how Ackerman reacted to that appraisal. So um, generally the the reception of the film over time has been that it's worthy but that it's hard to sit through. <laughs> so, you know, it's like vitamins. We all need them but we don't enjoy them. Uh, at the first screening of the film, which was in May 1975 at the Cannes Film Festival, Chantal Ackerman was sitting at the back with her main actress, Delphine Sirig, and they both told a story of how they could hardly hear what was going on in the film for the clacking of the seats as people left. So this was the first screening. And they were convinced Delphine was trying to reassure her, but they were convinced that, you know, no one ever will want to go and see this film. What have they done? However, the next day, Ackerman received about 50 contacts to show the film around the world. Mm. So that tells us everything about how it's difficult to see it through, you know, even at a cinephile festival like Cannes. And yet people could see that it was really worthy. Then the reception of the film after that is scattered across many years because of the difficulty of getting copies of it. So, for example, the key moment in the States was um, at MoMA in 1983. So you have a really expanded reception. So across those first kind of eight years, I suppose, when the film was made, um, John Jean Dumont seemed to be the film that everyone wanted but Ackham was a little bit ambivalent about. Uh, so we need to go back to the time and think about how much uh, feminism was in the air in 1975 and 1976. So let me tell you a little bit about that so we can understand that reception further and the importance of the film straight away. You mm -hmm. may or may not know that 1975 was branded the year of housework. <laughs> And um, didn't know that. Yeah. Did not know yeah. that. No. <laughs> and was that just was that in Europe or was that a global thing? A global year? Uh, of I know housework. that it was in Europe and the states. Okay. Uh, and and women were marching in the streets in that very year uh, for wages for housework. Mm. So you know the fact that uh, let's imagine Jeanne sitting in her little flat. And uh, one day where she opens the window and there are those women marching outside for, you know, wages for precisely what she does or the recognition of the labour of what she's doing. But she's not really touched by it. There were loads of feminist film festivals at this time as well. So no doubt some of those 50 people who contacted Ch Chantal at Cannes were to show it at feminist film festivals. So the film is really embraced it's embraced by academic and feminist communities because actually there were very few films made by women at this time to show at those festivals. Similarly, in France, which is probably less uh, receptive to feminist films, uh, in the paper Le Soir, uh, a reviewer called this the first work of art in the feminine in the history of cinema. So, you know. Evidence is uh, accumulating as to the importance of this film. However, <laughs> this zeitgeist that the film captured was not one that Chantal had expected or anticipated. She was interested in the women's movement. She said that the reason that she returned from New York, where she'd been working with Babette Mangold, was because she, she felt a real interest in women and what they were doing and women's issues. But she didn't march in the streets. She wasn't, you know, kind of out there like that. She certainly got money for the film because of that zeitgeist. And she said she tried to have it as an all-women crew. It was mostly women because she knew that would get her money. Everyone was talking about women is what she said. Fault. Okay, so over time, despite that, you know, amazing reception of the film, Ackerman's intentions have been revealed to be more personal 
for her, it wasn't about feminism and it wasn't just about the women because you may know that um, she's a Jewish woman and she's also a queer woman. So for her, there was more of a kind of um, human interest at the heart of the film, not unlike someone like Chloe Zhao has talked about, actually, in Nomadland. So she said that the film was a love film to her mother and it was inspired by what Ackerman observed while she was a child in the company of her mother and her aunts. And you can see how this is not quite as saleable, you know, as marketable an idea, especially in 1975, yeah. as the feminist one. Um, so for her, the retreat to the housewife was not about getting wages for housework. It was about mm -hmm. giving space to a particular generation of Jewish women who'd survived the Holocaust horrifically and were untouched by feminism. They just had to get on with their lives. Uh, so, for example, Ackerman has referred to the stillness in Jan Dilma's kitchen over the years as she's watched the film as being like the stillness in the camps. So for her, you know, the inflections and the reason for making the film were a little bit separate from how everybody else saw it. And I suppose that's often the case in these kinds of films. Yes. Um, is this where the notion of a contrary classic comes in? Definitely, yes. Um, so in my book on Jeanne Dillman, published by the BFI, um, the series itself asks you to write about classics. Mm. So this was a question that I had to tackle immediately with uh, Ackerman. And on the one hand, I, I really think I would want to argue that she and that film do fit in that series. So if we think about some of the obvious ideals of a classic, she uh, really fits within that a feeling then of an exceptional talent. So, mm. you know, if you think about Citizen Kane, Citizen Kane topped the sight and sound best poll for years and years because, among other things, there was this feeling that, they, you know, here was this kind of audacious, prodigious young man who'd made this film and it had come out fully formed. You absolutely get the same sense with Chantal, Mm -hmm. So Jeanne Dillman was only her second feature-length film. The one that she made prior to it, literally nine months prior to it, she just made so she could get money for Jeanne Dillman. Mm -hmm. And it's and that other film, Jutuilel, uh, Are uh, You He She, is very personal. It's very really quite different. So the fact that she was then able to go on and make this other film almost immediately, which stands the test of time, you know, she is an exceptional talent. Uh, and then maybe another key uh, part of being a classic is a sense that the film is unrepeatable. Hmm. So, you know, yeah. we can, what do you mean by that unrepeatable? Well, I was thinking about, you know, the fact that I can't see us ever having Jean Dillman the remake. <laughs> John okay. Dillman, too fast, too furious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, oh no, I think there have been attempts to do that on online. <laughs> there have been, yeah. So, so just the uh, so, if we think about the way that many filmmakers now, who you know like slowness in the cinema, will cite mm -hmm. it: Sofia Coppola, Gus Van Sant, Chloe Zhao. Mm -hmm. But none of them is trying to remake it. Uh, and maybe what I also mean about that sense of it's unrepeatable is its daringness. You know, we can still understand its daringness today. Uh, but also, of course, there's something about the film which means that it's not pleasurable. It can be mm. boring. It can be tedious. We can disengage, which, in my opinion, is why we have to watch it in the film theatre where we can't escape. Absolutely. Yeah, I was just I was going to ask you about that because on the one hand it seems like it's easier to access than ever, but it also kind of demands being experienced in a theater where there are as few distractions as possible. So I'm wondering how you think about the digital distribution of this film and how people are watching it today. 
Yeah, well, if I may, let me just get to the contrary bit. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, please. (laughs) My fault for giving you a long-winded answer. But I really wanted to, you know, put out there the fact I do think this fits the classic mould. But the contrary bit is because, you know, she dared to make a film that could be unpleasurable. Mm. Uh, she dared to make a film about something that we want to leave behind when we go to the cinema, which is like the washing up, the cooking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she said herself, um, you know, who dares to make a film about a woman washing up? That doesn't make great art. So this is the contrary bit. This, this is the, you know, there's definitely uh, an unrepeatable aspect and she had exceptional talent, but she dared to go there you know, mm-hmm. with unpleasure. Your question about um, the streaming of the film and whether that's altered things, well, I can't help but be a bit of a purist and say, no, you know, no, the film needs to be watched in the cinema because we need to be trapped and we need to enter into that zone where we're giving our full attention. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, of course, it's great that this film is seen. Mm-hmm. So I think I'd have to balance, is it better that more people see it? Or is it better that people see it in a higher, you know, qualitatively higher way, how it was meant to be seen, how she, the space she made it for, and the kind of experience that she wanted to give us? Yeah. I mean, in a big city like New York, I've seen it in rep theaters. And even before it topped sight and sound, I had numerous occasions where I could go see it. I saw it at, at twice in the last few years. So it's it still plays, you know, it, it's also, of course, in New York is a big cultural city. So maybe other cities, other places, other countries where I was born, for example, in Khartoum, I don't think it has ever played. So So for that, we should be, to your point, grateful for it being online. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Uh, It's interesting how you kind of relate it back to um, Ackerman in a very personal way, because it seems like this was personal for a lot of people who worked on the film and specifically Delphine Seyrig, um, the way that it kind of interacted with her own political ethos. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how this film works as kind of a turning point in her career and how it um, maybe affected the types of roles that she played. Yes. Well, the role that Delphine played in this film and the eventual performance is quite fascinating, largely because it does seem as if it's the complete opposite of the way she was cast in her more famous films from the 60s. But in fact, if you look at her performance carefully and then go back to those 60s performances, it was as if she was in training for this part all along. <laughs> so um, what I noticed when I was looking really closely at the film was um, Delphine had played these seductive women. So uh, we can think about key films like Last Year at Marion Bad by Alain René, uh, Bessé Volley by François Truffaut, and then um, a, a Harry Kumail film where she played a vampire. <laughs> so she plays this kind of impossibly seductive women. Uh, and in fact, this will tell you quite how successful she is. Uh, there's a famous scene in Bessé Volley by Truffaut's film where all she has to do is uh, sit on a kind of perch on a chair with a wet feather boa wrapped around her, trying on some shoes. And um, Antoine Douanel, played by Jean-Pierre Léon, is completely lost. <laughs> He's completely in love with her. <laughs> so she plays this impossible, seductive presence. Now, of course, in Jeanne Dimon, she plays the absolute opposite Ackerman was going for anti-seduction. But here's the key. Ackerman also said, I had to cast someone like Seyrig in this film because if I'd just put a quote-unquote normal woman in, it wouldn't have been the same. You wouldn't have noticed this character. So it's the fact that we're expecting something particular from uh, Delphine and we find it missing 
that we start mm. to think about, you know. So what do um, otherwise beautiful actresses do with their bodies in this space? Um, and the other reason that we need to know about her previous films is because in those films, what she does, which goes unseen really, is she interacts with the spaces and the props. And, of course, that's absolutely what Ackerman is asking her to do in Jeanne Dielman. There's a wonderful, wonderful documentary uh, called Autour de Jeanne Dielman, around Jeanne Dielman, and it's on the DVDs, the, the um, Criterion DVD, which reveals rehearsal processes. Uh, so uh, what what the reason that we have that documentary because, is because Ackerman had a v- video um, and would record the rehearsals so that Delphine could watch mm-hmm. them back. And in that documentary, we see several key scenes where they rehearse. And you get a real sense of Delphine, who is by that point in time, a fully formed feminist. Um, and Chantal, who works very intuitively. So, for example, there's a scene in which we see them rehearse the final the final sex scene in which um, Delphine is constantly asking for, you know, her motivation. And interestingly, and this tells us something about how she sees her role as an actress, she talks about, you know, the fact that, uh, so spoiler alert here, what what is what it, which you can cut out if you want <laughs> what is revealed in that final scene where we finally go in the bedroom is that uh, it appears um Jeanne has had an orgasm and then following the orgasm she kills her client of the day so as an actress Delphine is sitting on the bed with Chantal saying well you do realize don't you that you know actually this is the hope this is the um end point for most women that's what they want and yet of course in this film I'm reacting in the opposite way and I I need to think about how I should do that so it's very evident that Delphine came to this project with all of those performances in the background thinking Mm -hmm. about this psychologically and then had to throw it out the window because what Ackerman wanted was she wanted a performance that interacts with props interacts with space which is absolutely about showing how Jeanne keeps control over her life, stops stops it going out of control. And the performance that we get, I'm sure you'll agree, is absolutely masterful because yes. on the one hand it, it's repressed, there is very little going on. So I think of the way that um, as Jeanne Delphine is constantly standing with her feet together, everything is pulled in and yet... Mm. As the days unravel, we can see it in the tiny little gestures. Mm. Yeah. And I love that contrast that you draw in your book because you write specifically about the way that Sayrig uses her body in those very seductive roles. Like I believe you use that example that you mentioned earlier, but also describe kind of her velvety voice and how languid her body is in those films. Um, and here it's very different. I mean, it's thinking about her voice as one of her main kind of calling cards, I guess, as an actress and that she gets to use it so little in this film seems also very significant. Yes, yes, definitely. And she had problems with her voice. So she started off working a lot in the theater in the 50s and Mm. actually got kind of polyps, I think, on her um, vocal cords and lost her voice for a while. So it is a little bit ironic um, in the rehearsals um, that we see in the documentary, whereby Chantal is asking her again and again to go quicker when she's reading the letter from her sister in Canada. And this is something that's really hard for Delphine to do because of the problems that she has with her voice. So again, we, you know, we see what a great actress she is. I want to ask you about, um, so the film has always been, um, not always, but at least let's say the last decade has been sort of as a classic. People mention it a lot. There's a reason why it topped Sight and Sound um, this year. It's, you know, it's a gradual thing that happened to it. 
Um, and I wanted to ask you, why do you think um, it's sort of got this reputation to top um, the, the list um, this year? Or what has changed to make it leapfrog to the top? <laughs> yes. Well, I think you're right in pointing to the gradual nature of its rise and then the sudden nature of it being at the top. Those two things. It's hard to work out the, you know, how that those two cadences work together. Uh, I, I, th- I, can, I guess I can only guess that more availability has made this film um, more popular, I suppose. More people have seen it. Mm-hmm. Inevitably, ideas of um, what we want to see on screen when it comes to women have changed. And I think that, you know, the um, outrageousness of the film has caught our, our minds even more than ever. The outrageousness, you mean the ending, right? Yeah, or, well, or more of an aesthetic the outrageousness. classicness of it. Yes. <laughs> but both parts of it, really. The mm-hmm. fact that we sit there for all but 10 minutes watching the minutiae and then that the last 10 minutes something else happens. So, yeah, it's, it's outrageous in many different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes to the sight and sound poll, I suppose I'd like to think that um, their remit to ask a wider range of critics has meant that they're no longer just asking people whose, if you like, whose reputations are on the line, mm. you know, who, who may feel an obligation to put certain films on a list. If mm. you're a film critic or an academic in a precarious position, you know, po- possibly your, your tastes might be uh, wider and you might feel the obligation to uh, mention films that, to go back to the starting point here, people should see rather than you want to be known for having put on the list. Mm-hmm. So I would like to think, I'd like to think that you know, there's something ethical about this, that maybe it tells us something about the, a turn in the role of critic, you know, that maybe the role of critic has an ethical dimension to it as well, to, to push forward films that, that um, otherwise people wouldn't see. And, mm. you know, in, in that ilk, Jeanne Dillman becomes a film which possibly is about the Jewish experience or is about... Well, importantly, it's about an unliberated woman in the liberation of the 70s. And it's about the woman who stays in the kitchen rather than marches in the streets. And it's also about uh, this particular way of looking that Ackerman gives us, you know, which is slow and attentive and feels kind of meaningful as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm curious, you, do you screen this for students ever? Yes, I have a gender, uh, cinema gender and sexuality class uh, for honours students, so a small class. And I have screened it for many, many years. Um, I give them comfy chairs. <laughs> and we do take a break after day two. <laughs> and um, oh, no, okay. <laughs> and my dilemma is always and maybe this is the dilemma of this issue uh, episode as well how much to tell them mm. because I don't want to spoil things because you know you have to go through the experience and find it out for yourself and I don't want them to have any preconceptions and yet I want somehow to give them an introduction Mm-hmm. So it's always, without fail, a tricky experience for all of us, but a really rewarding one. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you have I, to be patient to to really with this film, absolutely. Yeah, but then it really so, rewards you. I'm so curious how like how younger people respond to it. Um, I because I, I love asking professors what um, younger people think when they maybe experience classic films for the first time or films that are made in a different cadence or a different speaking style than something that they're used to seeing these days. Um, So do you have any particular insights on that that might be interesting? 
I think that it speaks to the universal nature of um, parents <laughs> that everyone seem everyone seems to be able to connect with it on a certain level of you know childhood memories and uh, that sense of kind of the coddled situations of being a child. So often students will talk about it reminded me of, you know, being a child and my mother and caring or my, my father even. Uh, so there is that universal element. Um, and at the same time, they will talk about the strangeness. They will talk about it took me till day two to really get into it. Or, um, But something I'm always astounded by is that everybody – enjoys, <laughs> having talked about the unpleasure of the film, enjoys, enjoys that process of noticing. So, you know, I've actually, because I always sit in the room with the students and watch it with them, and people have actually gasped. So people have gasped on day three when she's polishing the shoes and, you know, she she did it perfectly with very effective strokes on day two and day three, she drops the brush. <laughs> so they know that this is significant. <laughs> uh, so that's to say that even though, you know, you, the um, displeasure of the film might be emphasized, there's a reward. There's definitely a, a reward for that attentive looking. Yeah. Um, do you see um, it's, it's, an influential film. Do you see that? Do you see it as an influential film? Have you seen it in other films or in other um, filmmakers' work? So I first saw Jean Dillman in the early 90s. And at that time, I had a terrible VHS copy of it. Uh, and I think it was really only when it came out on DVD in about 2007 that I could see it properly. Uh, and at that point, I started seeing it in other films. Um, the sense of pace that directors that we associate with slow cinema have, um, but then also the way of looking that we often get in artists' moving image. So um, I write about this at the end of my book. I really feel strongly that artists like Tacita Dean, for example, who makes lots of single shot films where she'll just hold the shot for a long time. Um, mm. Even to some extent, some of Steve McQueen's work in and out of the gallery, um, or I mean, there are probably two dozen gallery filmmakers who use the single shot mm. or who um, have very few shots. Uh, and I see that um, way of looking that Ackerman really perpetuated as being part of that gallery scene. And ironically, actually, because um, Ackerman herself made films for the gallery in the mid-90s onwards, but I don't think they work. <laughs> I don't think they work in a gallery context. Why is that? Why is that? Well, because they're not necessarily those long shots and, you know, that slow way of looking. Instead, they are typically recuts of um, mostly her documentaries that she made about the East, the South, um, and then Mexico. So recuts for the gallery. And I feel like when she loses that pace, she also loses that kind of absorbed looking, that attentive looking. And uh, anyway, for me, it, it, ironically, <laughs> it doesn't work. But she gives this gift to these other wonderful visual artists. So your book came out uh, before the Sight and Sound poll was released, correct? Yes, a year before. Right. Um, so have people, have you noticed that people are talking to you about it in a different way than they were before? Like, do you think the the label of being the sight and sound best film of all time can change the way that a film is perceived or talked about. And if it does change the way that people talk about this film, do you think it's a positive thing or maybe has some good and bad things associated with it? It's definitely changed the way people talk to me about this film. We all know about 
um, you know, we all know about taste cultures uh, and we all know that they have good and bad effects. Uh, I think that being at the top has had a good effect on uh, Jeanne Dillman, but the effect is such that people now think of it as a film that they should see. Um, and I guess uh, they won't necessarily, I'm talking about, I'm not talking about everyone, but some people, I suppose, who do see it won't necessarily um, have the context for it. So I think mm. it's really important to seek out the context, you know, having found out that you should see it. <laughs> um, I think something else that an effect, a kind of creeping effect since that poll in December that I'm noticing is a scrutiny of film canons. Yeah. So, right, yeah. Um, unfortunately, with Jeanne Dillman's um, place at the top, again, a woman has had to carry the burden of um, us critiquing systems, in this case, systems of taste. So, you know, just as many women filmmakers get asked um, about women on screen and get questioned when they um, make films about men on screen. So the place of Jeanne Dillman at the top has um, usually been written about in the context of um, questioning film canons, which I think is a good thing, really. So is the conversation there basically saying, should uh, should the canon exist or should we just kind of let people... <laughs> find their way to films as they might in their own way. No, I think it's more that you uh, you yourself may have read reviews that, um, you know, cannot believe that this film, along with other <laughs> films. So the other example I think of is Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I think that yes. was in at 30-something. Yeah, Yes. So I did read a, a critic writing about, you know, the ridiculousness of the fact that Portrait of a Lady of, on Fire, which was made less than a decade ago, is there in the top 30 uh, and really questioning um, who made this canon. You know, who do they ask to, to put these films in? Do they have no memory at all? <laughs> <laughs> For one right. film. Yeah, possibly <laughs> be yeah. good, Yeah. Yes, yeah. And no coincidence that, again, it's a film by a woman, which is very meaningful in a feminist context. So I think it, it's more about uh, indignation, I suppose. It, it, it's only there because it redresses some political question and not because it's actually great. <laughs> yes. So is it a worthy film? Is it just about worthiness? And uh, as we've discussed already, I do think that it feels like that uh, category of a, of a classic. Well, one of the things that I think being that it being on the top of the list that has made it's made people more people who have seen it, who maybe love it, who have ideas about it, whether positive or negative, think about it a little more and see it in other movies like you can't help but do that. And recently I watched um, Osman Sambeni's Black Girl again for another podcast. And I was struck by this movie that was made before Jan Dielman by a decade, about a decade before Jan Dielman. The whole time I'm watching this film, I was thinking about Jan Dielman because it's another movie that sort of puts housework at the center of its narrative. Um, and so my question to you is, it was made before, so there's definitely no influence, no connection there. But when a movie like this becomes thought of as the best film ever, the, does that then make us see it in other places that we never thought we would see it before? And in Jan Dielman's thing, is it because there are not that many movies in the canon that are made by women or about women? I'm not sure. I don't know I can answer that question because I suppose you'd have to ask Look, not being egotistical, but you'd have to ask someone who's less informed, who, who'd mm. maybe discovered it more recently and could make that comparison. So I suppose um, the way I'd answer that question is, do I see the strategies that Ackerman uses that are so successful for feminist filmmaking in other films? And I suppose I 
I would see them in um, uh, Meek's cut off. Mm. What was the direct? Who's the director? Remind Kelly me. Kelly Reichert. So I suppose I'd see them in Kelly Reichert, but I'm not aware that people always work back to Ackerman from Reichert. So they talk about the quietness of her films and the kind of unpronounced nature of them uh, and how we have to watch and how they're quite gentle. But maybe it's because there's often an element of genre that Reichert is working with that means that they don't make the connection back to, to Ackerman. So it's not something that I do very often, I suppose. I do mm-hmm. seek out slow, slower films. That's definitely the case. Um, but it's got to be a good thing, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is a good thing. I'm definitely just, you know, friends and people I never thought would watch this movie, you know, not cinephiles or anything. They they have watched it because it is very available, at least here in America. If you have a Criterion um, subscription, it's available. You can just click and watch it anytime. So. And what has their reaction been? Well, it runs the gamut. Some people really love it. I've had a couple of people who, um, you know, had that reaction that you were talking about earlier, that they can't believe that this is the one that's at the top now. Um, And it is to what you were, it is because of what you were talking about, the displeasures of it, which are, I assume, exasperated if you're just sitting at home with all the distractions around you. Um, You're not paying attention because you need to really pay attention and be enveloped by it to actually then um, enjoy the rewards that it gives you at the end. Yeah. Or uh, or throughout. Yeah. Well, the way you've kind of evoked that watching something at home makes me think, I've started thinking now, well, maybe you'd stop the film and, you know, like go and make your dinner just as she's made her dinner. I was going to say, I think my hot take is that it actually made me like, prepared to do housework in a way (laughs) I was like damn she's really getting through it you know look how easy that is I shouldn't procrastinate anymore um but I don't think that's the point (laughs) no but I agree because it 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 made me realize how housework is all about like if you imagine you know you've folded something so when it's out of control when it's untidy it's unfolded and then you fold it back again and it kind of doesn't exist uh, so just as you open a drawer, you've got to close a drawer. And I've realized that housework is all about kind of returning things to the way that you you found them. And Shan Dillman mm-hmm. taught me that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have one final question for you. Um, so you've talked about um, the inspiration of the film that you see in works like Kelly Reichardt. Do you see in movies that came before Jan Dillman, do you see inspirations that maybe Chantal Ackerman took from for Jan Dillman in other filmmakers' work before her? Well, whether we believe her or not, Ackerman said she didn't watch many films. Uh, and it probably is the case because it seems like she had her film education when she went to New York and she met Babette Mangold, a cinematographer, and went to, you know, endless screenings and performances with Babette. And she said, well, I never would have known about this if it wasn't for Babette. Um, so she, mm. it seems like she wasn't a cinephile director. Um, and the way that she's talked about this film suggests that she was influenced more perhaps by by performance because uh, she was thinking about the body a lot. I can't pinpoint any direct influences, but as we know, later on she went to, on to make a documentary on Pina Bausch, the kind of post-structuralist dance choreographer. So performance, uh, and she did see performances in New York as well, so she would have seen uh, probably Yvonne Rayner's performance group. And she was friendly with Lucinda Child as well, who was a dancer. Um, and literature as well. So even though it doesn't get talked about in relation to Jeanne Dillman, Chantal Ackerman thought of herself as a writer. And she did publish, she published books later in her life. Um, yeah, so I think she certainly hasn't talked about cinema influences 
I can't really see them. And it does seem to be more performance and literature. Would you recommend Jean Dielman as the first Chantal Ackerman film someone watches? And if not, what, what would you recommend? Would I recommend Jean Dielman as the first Chantal Ackerman film? Probably not, just because of its length. Um, I think there are three trajectories you can follow with Chantal Ackerman, and they all lead you to different places. So a, probably a good starting point for Jeanne Dillman is to view some of her later documentaries. So that slowness and that attentive look is a look that she brought to documentaries which she made about Eastern Europe, uh, a documentary called Dest, uh, Sud about racism in the in the US and the plight of migrants in Mexico in L'autre Côté, uh, and so that would be a nice kind of almost yogic introduction to the pace that Ackerman's cinema sets and how what she's interested in she doesn't point to. There's no pointing in Chantal Ackerman. You don't have close-ups. You don't have different camera angles. Instead, she she gives you the frame and she allows you to look, look around the frame. So that's one trajectory. But there is more to Ackerman, much more to Ackerman than Jan Dillman. She made over 40 films before she died in 2015, Um and her observational style is only one part of her. So she has also a very playful um, style. So this is the second trajectory you could follow. There's a wonderful short film called I'm Hungry, I'm Cold, which is set in Paris. And it's kind of, one, yeah. yeah, it's kind of burlesque. Yeah, um, and fine. then you could follow that with her, wait for it, Musical set in a shopping mall. Love that <laughs> one. I love it. Which, which is called Golden 80s, which coincidentally Delphine Serig is in again. Yeah. Um, and then a film that I love. So here's your trilogy. Uh, Tomorrow, <laughs> Tomorrow We Move. So De Manon Deminage from 2004, which is a kind of screwball comedy uh, about a relationship between a mother and a daughter. So you have the kind of slow, attentive documentaries. You have the playful Ackerman. And then the third trajectory is probably a little bit more um, what we might expect. is an art house trajectory. So from Jeanne Dillman, I'd recommend a film called Les Rendezvous d'Anna, Meetings with Anna, which is about a filmmaker. So it's kind of autobiographical in a way, a filmmaker but in true Ackerman style, what we don't see are the um, screenings that she goes to and the, the glamour and the glitz. We see the bits before, which are the travelling, the fact that, you know, she can never make contact with her lovers or her, her family. Uh, and then two more that I would recommend, La Captive, The Captive, which was um, a kind of adaptation of a Proust film. Uh, which makes a brilliant um, double feature with Vertigo because mm. we have a man following a woman. Um, and then a more melancholy film from 2011, Almayer's Folly, which uh, was, again, an adaptation of a Joseph Conrad novel. So in that last art house trajectory, you get the writerly Ackerman. Those were all really important scripts. So around the world tour of the full yeah. dimensions of Chantal yeah. Ackerman. So yeah. maybe what you're saying, are you saying that uh, she doesn't get enough credit for her range maybe? Absolutely. And it's important yeah. to say that um, Jeanne Dillman typecast Ackerman. You know, we talk about that with actresses, but we don't talk about that with directors. Typecast her as a kind of austere feminist um, filmmaker. And immediately afterwards, she wants to make a musical. Uh, she wants to adapt a, a kind of long Jewish novel and she can't get the funding for it. Oh, well, thank you so much. This was absolutely fascinating. And I now have a very long watch list of things that I need to tackle. <laughs> Listeners of the show will know that we tend to do a segment in which we throw it to Betty Davis and ask what our dump of the of the day is regarding 
the theme of the podcast. And guess what, friends? We forgot to do it <laughs> in this episode. So here we are in post. What a dump. Murtada, take, take it away. What is your dump for this episode? Well... I, John Dillman is a great film. It, there's nothing to dump on it. So I'm going to dump on somebody who dumped on it. I'm dumping on Paul Schrader. When John Dillman was announced as the number one in sight and sound, he made it something about being woke, that it was only um, voted number one because of... Um, I'm trying to find his um, his quote. He says, for 70 years, the silent sound poll has been reliable if somewhat incremental measure of critical consensus and priorities. Film moved up the list or moved down, but it took time. The sudden appearance of John Dillman is number one in the number one slot undermines the poll's credibility. It feels off as if someone put their sum on the scale, which I suspect they did. First of all, Paul Schrader, the... Boo, big boo, but also it did not suddenly appear at number one. As we talked with Catherine in this conversation, the movie was always on the list and it was incrementally moving up. The same thing you just said. And it got to number one, he says, because they expanded the list of who votes. That's a good thing, Paul Schrader. Um, So I don't know what he's on about. But he gets a big dump from me. I still love his movies, but maybe he needs to get off Facebook. Absolutely. I agree with you. Um, same. I love his movies, but that's a dumb take. Sorry. Yeah. Um, I think my dump for this one is just the sun. You know, not that I would change the movie in any way, but respect your mothers, everyone. <laughs> what a terrible child. Adult. The sun is terrible. Yes. Um, so yeah, I just don't blame her for, I guess, snapping. <laughs> if he was my son, I would also, I think, murder someone. So, so let us know if you have any dumps for Jan Dealman. And again, sorry to Professor Catherine Fowler that we forgot to do this during the episode. So we didn't get her dump. Um, and we did it in post. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, still new here. <laughs> <laughs> Catherine, thank you so much for coming on our show. And before we go, please let our, li- our listeners know where they can find you and your work. So they can download or buy a copy of uh, the Jeanne Dillman 23K de Commerce 1080 Bruxelles, the BFI classic. It's a short little pocket-sized book. Um, and alternatively, I am on LinkedIn and Academia EDU or the University of Otago webpage. Thank you again, Catherine Fowler, for joining us. We'll leave links to where you can buy her book in the description of this podcast. So be sure to check that out. Um, you can find the podcast at I Am Picture Show on Twitter and Instagram. You can find me on YouTube at Be Kind Rewind and Instagram, BK underscore Rewind, Twitter, BK Rewind. And you can find me at ME underscore says on Twitter and at Mortada underscore E on Instagram. And until next time, thank you for listening.